I just had a personal goal as a, you know, one of a million young male writers who really struggled to write female characters in my first several plays <laughs> to write a story that had two strong female leads who were not anyone's love interest, who were not, you know, the younger sister or the daughter, but who really had their own story in their own movie. I'm Sean Fennessy, editor-in-chief of The Ringer, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show with some of the most fascinating filmmakers in the world. How does a young playwright make the transition from stage to screen? For Corey Finley, it looks effortless. His first movie, Thoroughbreds, is controlled, tense, and shockingly assured. It's about two teenage girls plotting the murder of one of their stepfathers, and it has dashes of The Shining and Heathers. It's a perfectly timed movie, as bracing and dark as it is morbidly funny. I talked to Corey about making his first film and the challenge of writing female characters. Here's Corey Finley. Very excited to have Corey Finley, writer-director of Thoroughbreds, here with me. Corey, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Corey, you're a playwright. I am. And you're also a director and a writer. And those two things are similar and not quite the same. And I think a lot of people will be wondering how a person who's writing plays in New York ends up making a Hollywood film for Focus Features. Can you yeah. walk us through this process? I'm still wondering myself sometimes. Uh, it's been an amazing process. I... Um, uh, right out of college, uh, moved to New York and started writing plays. Um, it's what I've been doing pretty consistently for the last five, six years. Um, and, uh, one of those plays was the time called thoroughbred singular now, now thoroughbreds plural. Um, and it was a play that I fully intended to do as a play. It was mostly about two, uh, young women on one set, uh, mostly on one couch, just having conversations. Uh, but there was always something about it that felt uh, cinematic, that felt very filmic. There was something kind of genre about it, sort of a psychological thriller aspect. And um, the longer that I worked on drafts of it, the more I started just seeing it in film language in my head and seeing close-ups and tracking shots and um, just film imagery rather than seeing sort of the proscenium stage that I normally see when I visualize a play. Was that the first time that you had had that feeling about something you'd written? It was, yeah. And I hadn't even thought about this fact until it started changing, but I think I would always just kind of visualize a set, uh, whether it was a black box or sort of whatever stage format, but I'd see a set and I'd see actors on a set and I'd see usually sort of a limited amount of furniture and, and I'd see a, a play set up and for whatever reason, for this one, I just started seeing it like a movie. I think it just kind of wanted to be a movie. There's obviously a little bit of history with playwrights who become filmmakers. David Mamet and Martin McDonough, who's been lauded this year. Very recently. Yeah. Was this uh, something that you always wanted to do, too? Or were you always hoping to be a filmmaker? It was, yeah. In, in kind of an abstract way, I always um, really loved movies growing up. In the theater work that I was doing, I really, I, I was very drawn to obviously to the words and sort of to the, the role of the playwright in it all. And in the films that I would love, I would really, I was sort of drawn to the more superficially uh, directory parts of it, for lack of a better word. I really liked movies that had kind of a distinct visual style. Um, I tend to like kind of genre movies and, what were your go-tos? What was like? What was your personal canon? I think I I, uh, I probably had kind of the standard slate of like teenage uh, teenage boy movie posters on the wall, sort of filmmakers, which I say very affectionately and lovingly. But I was like <laughs> a huge Tarantino fan. I was a big 
Uh, I, don't, I don't know if he falls in the same category, but was and am a huge Paul Thomas Anderson fan, the Coen brothers. Speaking um, my language, Corey. Good, yes. That's still so much of the stuff that I really love. And I also, I, I, I always like kind of film noir and neo-noir and noir-influenced stuff, which I think became an influence in Thoroughbred and played into the way that I started seeing it. Give me a little more practical insight into that, though, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people here, young guy, playwright, Great ideas, great work, but making that jump is obviously the single hardest part for most people trying to get into the business. Like, what happens? Do you get a phone call from someone that says, you're a genius, I want to make this? Uh, definitely that. Definitely <laughs> the, the genius. Well, how granular should I get here? Because it's a, it's a long, winding, well, granular road. Try but. to give us, like, a full picture without going too too far down the road, I guess. You know, just try yeah. to help people understand, like, how something like this can turn over and change your life, basically. For sure, yeah. It was So it was first, like, a, just a writing sample. I think that's how a lot of screenwriters certainly sort of get their start in Hollywood as they have their, like, calling card script. And the the joke is that you do the water bottle tour. You go to all the the studios and production companies and you sit on the couch and you're not important enough for them to meet with you the moment you walk in. So you get the water bottle and you wait. Um, And and I kind of did that. But on that initial uh, water bottle tour, I was lucky enough to connect with a couple producers that were more sort of independent, smaller film focused and that – you know, for whatever uh, reason, just really connected with that material. And one of them, um, a producer named Alex Sachs, was actually at uh, ICM, the the company where I'm repped, the, the agency where I'm repped. And um, she was one of the first people to take an interest in it and connected me with some other producers. And um, then we sort of had a just a play, not even a screenplay at that point that we were excited to make, to, to try to make as a movie. And we started sending it out to cast. And then once we had sort of initial cast attached, our leads, we had a little bit of momentum and then, and then the rest sort of fell into place uh, quickly and sometimes very slowly. Okay. <laughs> so being a playwright is, is a somewhat similar to being a screenwriter, but is also radically different. How much mm-hmm. did your original play or what you were, the writing sample you were sharing with people change from before you started shooting? I think the heart of it changed very little. Um, a lot of the sort of key moments, sort of the, the key like dialogue moments in the movie, the real um, turning point scenes were were um, almost lifted directly from the play. But I was very aware that I, I didn't want to make a movie that felt like just a filmed play. I didn't want to make a static feeling movie. Hey, you talked about being a, a real film fan and, and fan of filmmakers who are directory in a way. Yeah. Um, and your movie has a lot of style, and it, it definitely does not feel like a first film. How did you determine not just how you wanted it to look, but how what people to bring on board to help you achieve what you wanted to do? And did you, it, since you'd never done it before, did you know where to go and what to ask for? I think I was definitely helped by the fact that I didn't know how much I didn't know. I think that can be a real asset. And the fact that because of one of our actors' filming schedules, we had a very compressed uh, adaptation and pre-production period, I think that was also a big asset. So there were a lot of decisions that I just had to make as quickly as possible because we only had one very brief shot to make the movie before our actors became unavailable. So it was a very instinctive process in that way, both in the writing and in deciding, in, in picking collaborators. I just mostly just went to film collaborators whose work I really admired. And same, I was just a fan of both of the lead actresses. I'd seen their, uh, I'd seen their movies, you know, recently. And uh, down the line with, with all of our sort of key 
department heads. Um, it was just people whose work inspired me. And because I had not kind of come out of the film world myself, it was just I was able to kind of go to people as a fan and uh, see if they wanted to make a movie. You're from the Midwest. You lived in New York. So why this story about two girls living in Connecticut? Where, where did the story come from for you? The story, to, the story took a very strange and winding path uh, to being what it became. And the, the screenplay was written in a real rush but for logistical reasons, but the play was like sort of a two-and-a-half-year on and off, putting it away, taking it back out sort of process. Um, and it started as kind of almost like a, a Connecticut family drama – uh, and was much more about the the parents of the what became the lead characters. I always start with an image uh, when writing, and the image with this one was a like a was a violently euthanized horse. I don't think that's giving uh, spoiling too much. No, I hope it might vaguely <laughs> explain one aspect of the title. <laughs> it might shed some shed some light on the title. But um, I had this this image. I think it was an image that was that sort of freaked me out in a useful way. Uh, there was something about, like, even even just, like, the euthanizing of my own pets uh, growing up always had a real effect on me. And there's something about sort of, like, the, the idea of mercy killing that is very um, primal and, and sort of seems to belong to an earlier time and place but still exists with our, with our pets and our, and our uh, domestic animals. And uh, there was something that felt ripe about that. And it really took a long time to sort of find the characters to assemble around that image. And it's funny because you start with the image and then hopefully it becomes all about the characters and the characters become the core of the story and the guiding principle. But, um, but yeah, it was just there was something about this sort of Connecticut horsey world um, that felt like a right place to, to set a, a present-day thriller. And what about the two characters that are at the center of the story? Are they – flashes of people that you know that you've encountered in your time or they what where are you drawing from to build them because they're both very specific and very precise and they feel um real in that dreamlike way that you talked about Lyle creating there's a lot of a lot of people that I know in them but there's a lot of me in them there's an uncomfortable amount of me in them <laughs> that's made and, me very uncomfortable <laughs> yes people you're, understand you're that when they see the movie I <laughs> um I, I think in a way like writing this story that was about these teenage girls gave it a little sort of a useful little bit of distance so that it didn't feel I, and I almost didn't realize it until I had already done it, but I was able to sort of explore some of my own kind of fears about myself through them, I think. Um, and what, one of the characters, Amanda is very, as Olivia Cook's character in the movie is a very um, s sort of an emotionless figure who has recently uh, come to embrace her own emotionless and um, emotionlessness and not be ashamed of it. Uh, and I think I feel, and, and probably everyone feels like on, on some days sort of, I, I can be, uh, unpleasantly surprised at my own lack of empathy about things, my own, um, lack of, uh, concern about things. I think, uh, I, I don't think I'm actually an unempathetic person, but I think I spend a lot of time worrying that I am. Uh, and that character is a way of sort of dealing with that. And then and then Lily, um, Anya Taylor-Joy's character, is, is sort of the opposite and is a character who feels things very deeply and who can't control those emotions and whose emotions about small things take on outsized importance in her life. And, and uh, I, I can can feel like I have both of those sides within me and this, this – uh, story was a way of sort of uh, of, of working through that and of um, 
of coming to embrace that, hopefully. Staging a play is obviously quite different from staging a film, too. What was it like to be watching those very personal feelings that you put on paper get played out and drawn out over long periods of time on shooting days like that? Was it were you able to have some distance from what you'd written or do you feel like really closely etched on top of it? I think so. I think I did have distance from it. I think um, one of the great it's it's been cool to to kind of direct for the first time on this movie. I'd really only written um, hadn't even directed plays, and I think there is something sort of so solitary and personal about the writing process, and so sort sort of inherently emotional about the writing process. And um, the directing process is is a cool. Um, is, is interestingly different from that because you have to be – there's so much leadership in it. You have to be um, setting the tone for other people. You have to be – you're sort of a logistical expert among other things uh, when you're on set. And so I think I was always looking for emotional truth from the actors, trying to sort of help them find it and reach it. But um, was uh, – it was a more – sort of tactical process on set, I guess. And and it was we were more aware that we were sort of building something together rather than, you know, just feeling our way through something. Did you feel prepared for that? By day three, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I think... Uh, what was the feeling on day one? Well, you know, I, I came in cocky at the very beginning. Uh, again, I think just not knowing how much I didn't know. I just uh, convinced myself that I knew how to do it. And then I think it was like, yeah, right after we started rolling on our first take at uh, sort of the reality of it set in and that I was was doing this um, for the first time with very little preparation. And um, the first, it was funny because the first day was a lot of very technical work. But uh, once we got into the more emotional sort of heart of the story, it started becoming a little bit easier. And um, the fear went away quickly, but it's a real thing. And it's a, it's a thing I've learned to embrace you'll be ready on the next one i'll be ready on the next one yeah (laughs) Um, did you have reference points that you shared with the cast and crew beforehand did you say watch this film read this play this is the tone i'm trying to set a little bit i talked certainly with um with department heads with lyle the dp with alex boverd our costume designer um i would uh we would talk about i think you often have to kind of communicate with images communicate in images and in images from other movies and photographs that I, that we liked and things like that. Um, I talked a little bit with the actors about sort of a tone, sort of like the way dialogue, sort of the rhythm of dialogue in older kind of 40s film noir type movies. But I also didn't want the actors to be sort of thinking too much about style. I wanted them to be, you know, kind of living these moments in, in real time. Um, so we we certainly talked a lot on sort of the technical side about other films and about uh, about The Shining and the way that that Kubrick kind of um, uh, makes that space feel huge, even though it's very claustrophobic, um, and about film noir. But uh, with the actors, it was mostly just talking about the characters and, and backstory. It's interesting that you know Anya Taylor Joyce in the movie she's becoming kind of like a Jamie Lee Curtis of psychological thriller uh, sure, figure yeah. now I, I did you have a sense of that um when you guys were working together that she was you know in a low key way becoming an avatar for a very a specific kind of movie you know that when you see her it communicates like there will be some tension coming yes yeah when we started working together i'd only seen the witch which is a movie that i really love and she'd uh, she's she's so captivating in that movie. Uh, I don't think any of her movies that she's filmed since then had come out at the time. Um, and she came to our set having worked on 
three or four movies back to back. She's a very, very hard worker. Mm -hmm. And I knew she was great and really talented. But a lot of those movies that have really sort of raised her profile since um, we were just hearing, you know, her stories about working uh, on set with them. It's been about a year since you debuted the movie at Sundance, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens, you know, we hear about this a lot, a movie debuts at Sundance, it gets, uh, it's well received, it gets distribution, and then there's a waiting period. Mm -hmm. So as a creative person, what are you doing in this waiting period? What is this year like for you? I think there's a, it's a lot of, there's certainly some press and promotional stuff for the movie, which is great. Um, and then it's sort of beginning to look at other projects. And um, I have a very, I, I, think we'll continue to have that very winding and unpredictable writing process. So I've been doing a bunch of writing and then I've been uh, sort of doing a, a very, you know, something which is very new to me, which is being attached to projects as a director and, and not a writer sometimes and taking meetings and, and just sort of uh, cultivating the field of possibilities that will lead to the next, the next movie and the next several movies. Have hopefully. you been elevated off of the water bottle tour? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe the water bottles have become nicer. And, uh, <laughs> this is, I have a great water bottle here today. Yeah, so only smart water here at the up. ringer. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, but I, very much still that, you know, that that's the world, I suppose. I wanted to ask you about uh, Anton Yelchin, his performance. This is the last performance I think he gave before he mm -hmm. passed away. Um, he's really wonderful in this movie. Um, maybe could you just reflect on working with him and what that experience was like? Yeah, it's it's it was um, – it was really amazing and wonderful. I mean, he's a um, – I do think it's a great, really, really great performance within the movie. And I think we were all, you know, felt very fortunate to have the chance to work with him. His role in the movie, he's – I would hesitate to say like comic relief, but it's a, it's a movie with a very deadpan overall style. And he really gets to come in and bring energy and, and spontaneity to the movie. That was very much his – sort of presence on set too. And he was a very, like, uh, simultaneously very serious about the work and about the craft of acting, um, but intensely playful when doing it. Um, did a lot of improvisation and um, came in after it had been several days of really just working with Anya and Olivia and brought this sort of whole new crazy dynamic uh, to the set. And um, and just the sweetest guy too and was, was uh, at the end of our, um, final sort of rap party was like doing rounders in his car, taking crew members home and um, was just such a sort of giving guy. So um, it was, it was awesome to work with him for sure. I've been thinking a lot about the story since I saw, I saw this movie months ago. I, I'm curious sort of what you're feeling the, of the primary mission of the story was because it's taken on some added weight, I think, given the store, the headlines the last six months or so. But when you first started writing it, what, what were you like hoping to convey about these two girls? I think, again, like I, I sort of started with just a very abstract image and then moved into just trying to be sort of true to these characters and making them as complex and interesting as possible. And and I think sort of like the social objective or the political objective of a movie is always sort of the very last Step and you, I, I sort of trust that it will that it will be honest and worthwhile and true if you do your work on those those earlier parts of the movie and stay true to the characters and to the world. I think for me there was always the whole process was sort of tied up in my own anxieties about wealth and about the influence of wealth and privilege on people and particularly on young people. There was always something that was interesting for me about 
lead characters that were definitely big beneficiaries of privilege, but were also sort of drowned by it and were at a moment in their own journey in life where they were kind of building their own moral codes. And so I hope that the movie says something that is hopefully hard to boil down, but that is uh, truthful about the effect of living in a capitalist world and living at the top of that particular food chain. I just had a personal goal uh, as a, you know, one of a million young male writers who really struggled to write female characters in my first several plays <laughs> to write a story that had two strong female leads who were not anyone's love interest, who were not, you know, the younger sister or the daughter, but who really had their own story in their own movie. Did you have like a council of people that you showed the script to before you started shooting? I'm always curious about how many people get to see what's going to start going into action. And you talked about, you know, having some concerns about writing female characters in your earlier work. Like, will you show it to people and say, like, help me understand if I'm doing this correctly? I will. And, and I think that's one of the very cool things about the way that the kind of playwriting theater world works is that you're able to develop uh, a script with a bunch of actors and the actors can change. But there's sort of a whole process of doing readings and, you know, readings around a table and then readings with music stands in front of people to, to sort of hear early versions of a draft out loud. Um, and uh, we did a bunch of readings when it was still a play and when I sort of fully intended to do it as a play. Um, and I got huge feedback then. You, you also can get a really interesting sort of feedback, I think, just listening to actors, um, listening to where actors' instincts take them on their first time reading through a script. Um, but I definitely had uh, not even sort of a small, closely trusted council, but a big group of collaborators that that really helped with sort of the, the script as a play. And it's interesting sort of um, starting to write things purely for the screen, things that start as a screenplay now. Um, I'm always trying to find ways to keep that process alive. I, f I get the impression that when the film comes out, a lot of people are going to apply spe their specific visions of the world onto the characters and the story that you've created. There's mm -hmm. a lot of evident sort of taking power ideas in, in the story that you're telling. What's your level of comfort with people saying, this is what this movie is about, even though that's not the intention that we talked about um, a few minutes ago? I think that's great, and I think um, I'm definitely a firm believer that I do not hold like an authoritative key to the meaning of a story. Um, we'll, we'll see if you know. I'm sure there will be some uh, out there takes that uh, that that make me furious, but I. Uh, but no, I'm for now. It's been very exciting to hear the different ways people take the, the movie, the different ways in which it's personal to them, the different sort of meanings that they take from it. And um, yeah, as, as someone who loves to have those debates and talk about sort of the out there interpretations of movies that I love, I, um, I'm, a, I'm a big enthusiast of multiple uh, readings of movies. How do you figure out what you're going to do next? Does, does it have to be a film? Could it be a play? Yeah, it doesn't have to be a film. I, I definitely want to keep doing plays. I think there are very sort of cool things you can do in the theater that are harder to do on film. But I had such a just fantastic experience with this movie uh, that I'm very excited to keep working in film right now. I have a couple things brewing, none that I think I can speak publicly about, I guess, but I, um, I'm, I'm definitely interested in continuing to, to work on, on stories that have like a little bit of a genre element to them, but also 
hopefully function as dramas and mm-hmm. sort of live in that interesting in-between area between multiple genres. What genres? Give us a little hint. I think there's so much you can do with broadly construed the thriller genre. I think like suspense as an engine of storytelling is one of my favorite uh things to play with. Um, it's also been it's sort of pushed to the side a little bit, I feel like, in the last 10 years. It's not as much a, a like a primary. It doesn't feel like the 90s when there would be a, a, a series of films that were driven by, like, the thriller category. It feels like it has, yeah. like, lost a little bit of its luster. I think it's been, a, like, with, you know, uh, certainly with Get Out, it's been a very mm-hmm. cool year for thrillers with on, on that count alone. And I, I saw a cool uh, Christopher Nolan interview where he was talking, I think, about uh, you know, sus- like suspense or or tension being the the visual language that he chose to tell Dunkirk, and that mm. couldn't be a more different movie from Get Out or from Thoroughbreds. But uh, but I think there's uh, there are some cool cool thrillers out there for sure. Have you seen Raw? I have. Yes, that's, that was. I think that's my top uh, movie of the year. That is so far. a suspenseful and a um, how soon will I vomit kind how of way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> how long can I handle this? That's right. Sort of way. That's a very good movie. Yeah. Corey, congratulations on the movie. Thank, Thank you. you for doing this. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Corey Finley, and thanks for listening to today's episode. For more on movies, uh, head to TheRinger.com, where Cam Collins reviewed A Wrinkle in Time, a fascinating and complex new movie from Ava DuVernay. And check back next week when we'll have a new episode of The Big Picture. This is J.J. Reddick here to talk to you about the J.J. Reddick Podcast, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Currently, I play in the NBA for the Philadelphia 76ers, but you may know me from my previous teams, the L.A. Clippers, Milwaukee Bucks, and the Orlando Magic, or from my college days at Duke University. Being a professional basketball player, I have a great opportunity to talk to a lot of interesting people, and the podcast is a place where I can share those conversations with you, the listener. On my show, I sit down with athletes, celebrities, and a variety of other special guests. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the J.J. Reddick Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.